It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, it's Jen. And this is Lindsay. And welcome back to the cryptic series of Corpus Delicti. Super excited to have everyone back and listening to us after that intriguing Sherlock Holmes case. Yeah, that one was very interesting. And I think that it brings up a lot of good questions. And I think it sets the stage really well for this series because tonight's is just as debatable and just as intriguing. So we hope you guys are going to be as into this as we have been. Before we get started, we did have one quick update that we wanted to provide. So we are going to extend the logo competition because a couple of you guys reached out saying that you don't have enough time. So what we're going to do is we're just going to extend it to the Ides of March. And for those of you like Lindsay, sorry, are quite unsure what that is, <laughs> we will go with March 15th. So you've got just under, what, two weeks? Yeah, a little more than two weeks. And reminder, this can be just whatever you think would make a good logo. It can be a quote from the show. It can be a cartoon. I mean, just whatever you think. Use your creativity and what you would like to see on stickers and shirts and all that. And the winner will actually get a shirt with the design on it. Now, I will say this. We did get one that was like a pencil drawing on a notebook. We can actually get somebody to fill that in and color it and style it. So if you have an idea and you are not really that artistic it doesn't have to be perfect we can take it and we can modify it if you want us to you have to tell us ahead of time that you want us to do that but if it's something that you want just a little bit more of a professional polish on it let us know because Lindsay's husband's the drawer yeah he can do them yeah we have several people who can help with that so just yeah just let us know but with that said Jen found a really interesting story for us this week And we, again, fell into a rabbit hole together. Usually when one of us does an outline, that person will fall fall in the rabbit hole and then pass it to the other person just to kind of check over it. And and that's that. But this one, she fell in it, passed it to me. I fell in it. Then we fell in it together. And 
there's we a lot here. debated this one quite a bit to the point where I got out Google Maps. I was doing some straight line view. <laughs> yep. And to tell you that I have never before thought that we had two back-to-back episodes where both of us were debating. And actually, it's been three now. The past three episodes, yeah. both of us have just been deep into it. So I'm going to cut the suspense. I think we've held them out as long as we can. Tonight, we are going to talk about the locked room murder. It is the murder of room 1046. It is probably a very highly debated murder about who did it, what happened, and the timeline. So what we're going to do is we're going to take you through the murder. And I've got some interesting questions that I've been saving for you, Lindsay, and I'm dying to hear your opinion. All right, I'm ready. Let's do it. Now, we're going to take you to a very cold winter's night in Kansas City, Missouri in 1935. This is where a young man walked into the hotel president. Now, the staff made note of this man, presumably because he looked like he was in his early 20s. But here's the crazy bit. He didn't have any luggage with him. No bags, nothing. But he was well-dressed and his overcoat was very nice. The staff presumably thought that he was a professional boxer or a wrestler. Now, this is because of his cauliflower ear. This is what boxers usually get because they receive multiple blows to the ear, and then the cartilage separates in the ear, and the blood kind of gets in between and dries and hardens, so that's why you get that disformity in your ear. Beyond that, he also had a scar that they found noteworthy. It was unique because it was on his temple above his ear. And so during the time he was checking in, he gave the staff his name, which was Roland T. Owen. And he was visiting from Los Angeles where he lived. So when he filled out all of his information, he put that his residence was in LA. Now, he only checked in for one night, and as Jen said, he had no bags. So when the bellhop took him up to his room, he didn't really have to carry anything. But keep in mind, we're back in 1935. It was just that excellent service. I'm going to escort you to your room, unlock the door for you, help you get settled. Randolph Probst was the bellhop who accompanied Mr. Owen to the elevator and up to the 10th floor. Now, on the way up to the 10th floor... Owen had commented to the bellhop that his previous night's stay at the Moulinblock Hotel was $5, and that to him was absolutely outrageous. He complained about it. Now, it's about $100 today. At check-in, Mr. Owen said his room must overlook the courtyard instead of the street view towards the traffic to be on a higher floor. Now, a lot of people have this preference. To me, I do not want to stay on a high floor. I want to be on the bottom floor because if it there's a fire, I want out quickly. Randolph saw Mr. Owen unpack. And when I say unpack, I mean that very lightly because the only thing that he did unpack was a hairbrush, a comb, and toothpaste. And he was able to pull this out of his overcoat, just the interior pocket of his coat and onto the sink counter. Now, Randolph's job was practically over. You know, he came in, he opened the door, they looked at the room, he put his a few items down. So it was time for them to leave. Mr. Owen did leave the room with the bellhop. Randolph turns to lock the door and they both went down to the lobby and Owen exited the hotel. 
so after they have both left and continued about their day, it was time for the afternoon maid to come in and do her cleaning. Her name was Mary Soptic, and she was working her normal room assignment, which included room 1046. Now, at this time, she goes to the room, and she was surprised because Mr. Owen was there. The night before, there had been a lady staying in that room, so she just was a little bit surprised to see him in the room. She said, oh, hey, do you mind if I clean or I can come back later? And he was like, no, you're fine. Come on in. Do what you need to do. Now, the room was very, very dimly lit. There was only one lamp on. All of the curtains were drawn shut to make the room dark. While she was doing her duties, Mr. Owen got up to brush his hair, put on his overcoat, and then asked Miss Soptic to keep the room unlocked because he was expecting some friends to come by and visit in just a few minutes. So she's like, no problem. But she needed to refresh some of the towels from the previous hotel guest, and she left to go get them. She returns back at 4 p.m. with a set of freshly cleaned towels. Now, when she came in, again, the room was super dark. Only that one lamp was turned on and all the shades were drawn. Mr. Owen was on the bed, fully clothed. She had noticed that there was a note on the bedside table. And the only reason why she could see this note is because the hallway light was shining into the room. On the note, it read, Don, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Wait, let's go to the next day. Now, there's a lot of events that happen that night, but we're going to jump forward just for the day and we're going to go back to it. So Miss Optic, the maid, comes to the room the next morning at 10.30 a.m. The door is locked. She just assumes that he's out of the room because he only paid for one night. When she unlocked the door, she walked in and she was surprised he was still in there. And again, completely dark with only that one lamp on. Well, while she was in there straightening up, changing the sheets, the phone rang. She saw him pick up the phone. He listened and then said, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. No, I'm not hungry. To me, this was very strange. This is 1030. This is brunch time. You're encroaching on lunchtime here. And nobody saw him leave to go eat breakfast. So presumably we don't know his whereabouts the night before. So after that, he starts to talk to Miss Soptic about her job. And he's asking, is this hotel residential as well? Or is it only just short night stays? During this conversation, he mentioned again about the Mule Box expensive rates, which was that hotel he had been at the night before. And then once she finished her tasks, she left the room. She took the towels with her. She's going to wash them, bring some clean ones back later. Now, she had a long shift that day. And around 4 p.m., she returned back to his room, room 1046, with another fresh set of towels. But this time, it was different. She knocked on the door. And she heard two distinct voices. The voice that responded was loud and deep and said, who is this? And she said, hey, it's me. I've got your fresh towels. And the same man responded, we don't need any. Now, this is interesting because she took all the towels that morning. Now, she doesn't know how many nights he paid for. That's kind of between the front office. So she doesn't know that he hasn't paid for another night. But... She took all the towels, so whoever's staying in that room is actually going to need towels. 
So at 6 p.m., Gene Owen, this is in no way related to Mr. Owen. This is someone completely different. She was out shopping in the city and decided to check into the hotel just to spend the night instead of driving the two hours back to Lee Summit, which she lived. Now, she had started feeling sick during the day and thought it best to spend the night and just to see how she felt the next morning. Her room number was 1048. Now, this is right next to Mr. Owen. So, you have Miss Owen and Mr. Owen. Her boyfriend worked in the city in the Midland Flower Shop. And his job ended for the day. He went to visit her about 9.20 and stayed for two hours. It was later that night at her, after her boyfriend left, she heard men and women talking very loud, using foul language up and down the hallway. Take note of this. this these voices would have been around 11.30ish. We don't know the exact time, but we're looking at that 11.30 range. At this same time, she starts to hear sounds of a scuffle as well as a gasping noise. Now, she assumed it to be someone snoring, maybe someone having a bad night's sleep, a nightmare, whatever, and doesn't think anything of it. Now, add to this, the elevator operator, Charles Blocker, started his shift at midnight. He said that the hotel was pretty busy until about 1.30 in the morning. But, and around that time, everything seemed to quiet down except for a party that was happening in room 1055. It was a little loud over there, a little crazy. And he recalled that one visitor that night did come through. She was a hotel regular and she visited clients often at the hotel and she was a sex worker. She came to visit a man who was also on the 10th floor in room 1026. So she goes up and about five minutes later, she calls this elevator operator and says, hey, I'm confused. I was supposed to go to room 1046 and no one's in there. Do you think maybe it's supposed to be in room 1024 because there's a light on in there? Now, if you notice, when she went up, the the bellhop is asking her, where are you going? She says 1026. Then she calls him and says, hey, no one's in 1046. 1046, that's different, and says, hey, maybe is it supposed to be the person in 1024? Needless to say, she can't find her client. So the elevator operator goes back to the lobby. He's not really able to help. He's like, look, I don't know who called you. That's between them and the Lord. So after she gives up waiting for this client, she leaves the building and she comes back later. Now, she comes back approximately one hour, but she has another client with her, and they go up to the ninth floor. Around 4.15, she and him had finished, and it was time for them to leave. She, del- she leaves the hotel. About 15 minutes later, the same man that she entered with came downstairs and said he was just going to go for a walk because he could not sleep. Now, this man... And this is important to know, is about 5'6 and 135 pounds. Now, there is a report out there that we kind of read through that she resembled the same height and the same weight. So they were approximately the same size. Now, there's no way of telling if any of this is connected to the events that we're about to tell you, but they're actually pretty noteworthy in the story. Now, at 11 o'clock that night, so we're going to back up before 
the sex worker and her client. At 11, Robert Lane, he is a city water worker. He's driving down 13th Street near Lydia Avenue. He sees a man, which is, remember, this is in January. This is in Missouri. It's cold. He only has pants on and an undershirt. There's no overshirt, you know, the button-up ones. There's no jacket. There's no hat. He sees this man. This man's flagging him down, trying to get him to stop. When Lane stops, the man goes, oh, man, my bad. I thought you were a taxi. Can you take me to somewhere I can get a taxi? Lane, seeing how he's dressed, going, yeah, man, come on in. And he says, and this is a quote, you look as if you've been in it bad, meaning you just got beat up. The man said after that, like he was going to kill somebody. He swore it. And this may be in connection to whatever happened to make him missing a shirt, his coat, or his hat. It also might be in connection with our Mr. Owen because he had a deep scratch on his arm. Dude got into a nasty fight. So Robert Lane agrees to take this guy who's barely dressed and said he's going to kill someone tomorrow and all that. And he's, he's got this scratch on his arm. This man, this unknown man, was cupping his arm, and it looked as if he was trying to maybe catch blood from the wound on his arm. And in that area, taxis tended to kind of hang out at the intersection of 12th Street and Troost Avenue during the overnight hours. So that's where Mr. Lane stopped and let this guy out. The man says, thank you for the ride, and the man saw a real taxi, So he goes up, he opens the driver's side door, starts honking because the cabbie wasn't in the the cab. The cabbie was actually eating at a restaurant. And when the cabbie heard his horn honk, the cabbie comes running out and starts to take him. And they go off to wherever they were going. Now, this was around 11, 1130-ish, as we said. Now, if this passenger was connected to our Mr. Owen in the hotel... He technically could have made the 1.3-mile journey back to the hotel in time for Miss Owens in the next room to hear the voices cursing loudly in the hallway. Yes, because the boyfriend left at 9.30, and it was approximately two hours later she heard the voices. Keep in mind, as Jen said, we are not 100% certain that this is relevant, but it seems to be, and in all retellings of this story, it seems to be a big point so just keep that in mind when we get into the discussion part of the story so now let's cut to january 4th 7 a.m at the hotel the switchboard operator comes into work and there was a wake-up call for room 1046 and when she goes to make the wake-up call she notices that the phone was off the hook again keep in mind the times here this is very basic technology that we don't have today so she gets the bellhop which was randolph the same one that we talked about earlier and she says hey go up there and knock on the door and wake him up and wake him up so he does but when randolph gets up there the door was locked and there was a do not disturb sign so he starts knocking very loudly because he's like do you want me to disturb do you want me to wake you up like you said so finally A voice from inside said, come in. Randolph tries to go in, but it's locked. And so he he couldn't get in. He knocked again, but the voice said, turn on the lights. And Randolph is like, 
I can't. Your door is locked from the inside. I can't just come in. And he says, hey, put your phone back on the hook. You asked for a a wake up call. You need to put your phone back on the hook. So he leaves. Randolph goes back to the operator and says, hey, whoever's in there probably just got drunk and just give him an hour or so and try again. So now it's 8.30. She waits an hour and a half. The phone is still off the hook and the sign is still on the door. Harold Pike, now he is the second bellboy. You know, at this point, Randolph is like, dude, I'm not doing it anymore. I went up there. I yelled at him. I banged on the door. You're going up there. So Pike goes up there. The door is still locked and the sign is still there. But this time I'm bringing a key. So he opens the door. He lets himself in. And of course, the room is dark. The shades were drawn. And only the light in the hallway is shining in. And what he sees is Mr. Owen laying naked on the bed. Thinking he's just drunk and the dark spots on the bed could have been anything, could have been shadows. Pike walks over, picks up the phone off the floor, places it back together again and walks out. Two hours later, now we're at 1030 in the morning. Another hotel switchboard operator saw the phone again off the hook. Randolph was like, you know what? I'm going up there. I'm going to see what's going on. And the do not disturb sign was still on the door. You know, learning from the wake up call, he was like, this this door is going to get locked. I'm bringing my key. He unlocks the door or he knocks first, but there's no answer whatsoever. So Randolph puts the key in the door, turns it. He unlocks it. He goes in and he gets a surprise of a lifetime. He sees Mr. Owen on his knees and elbows, two feet away, and his head is bloodied. And he's actually kind of holding his head in his hands. So he's crawling on the floor and his head is down. So the bellhop immediately turns on the lights, puts the phone back on the hook, and then sees blood all over the walls of the main room and the bathroom and on the bed itself. So now we're thinking this is the dark spots that the other bellhop possibly saw earlier. Randolph takes off. He's running down the lobby to get help. He grabs the assistant manager, but when they go back up to the room, they could only open the door six inches. Mr. Owen had made his way to the doorway and then just gave out. He completely collapsed. Eventually, He did get up when the two hotel employees were able to enter the room, and he went and he sat on the edge of the bathtub. In the meantime, the assistant manager calls the police, and they come, joined by Dr. Harold Flanders with the Kansas City General Hospital. Mr. Owen had been bound with a cord around his neck, his wrists, and his ankles. His neck had been further bruised, which suggested somebody really tried to strangle him. He had been stabbed in the chest above the heart, and one of these wounds actually punctured his lung. He had experienced a fractured skull from all of the blunt force trauma. This is when the group of men saw all of the blood spatter in the room, on the ceiling, on the walls, on the floor, on the bed, and they were like, dude, was this a suicide? Did you try to commit suicide? And of course, he says no. And they're like, well, who did it? All he says was nobody. And when they kept prodding him going, you know, what happened? He said that he had fallen and hit his head on the bathtub. 
This is when he loses consciousness and he's taken to the hospital. He was completely comatose by the time he arrived and he died just after midnight on January 5th. Now, we're going to get really deep into these details, and we are going to pick them apart. So y'all stay with us, because we'll be right back. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, guys. Welcome back from the break. We have a lot of surface to cover, so let's go ahead and get started. Immediately after Owen passes away, police begin to investigate the apparent murder because at this point, they, they know that somebody had to have done this to this man. Frank Howland and Fred Green were the lead detectives assigned to the case, and they were also looking into two other recent murders. So they're wondering if there's something bigger going on here, because one man was just hanging out in his backyard. He had just gotten out of his car, and he was shot in the abdomen and shoulder. And then that same night, another man was found in an alley, and he appeared to have been murdered with an axe. Now, at first, they really wanted to focus on Miss Owen. Now, she was the girl in the next door that had checked in. They looked at her since her last name was similar, but after they talked to her and they did an extensive interview, they really could not find any connection. The room went through a thorough examination and an autopsy was conducted. The doctor determined the time of attack that caused all of those really bad wounds, the stabbing in the head, it had to have been around four to five that morning. Now, remember at this time, the commercial or sex worker woman and the man, the mystery man, leaves about 4.15 and 4.30. Now, when the police are searching the room, the one thing they noticed is that no luggage was there. Now, we do know that Owen didn't bring any luggage with him. However, what little he did have was gone. He was naked when he died. We know that much. And his clothes were gone, too. Beyond that, his brush, his comb, the toothpaste, all of that is gone. So much so that all the soap, shampoo, and towels, everything that the hotel had supplied, all of that was gone, too. Now, they did find a tie label but no one could confirm it was his, but that was it as far as what possibly could have been. There was also not any sign of any type of weapon that could have inflicted these wounds. As of today, too, hotels provide two glasses for the room, and there was the same to be said about the hotel president. Two glasses were found. One was still on the shelf right above the sink. The other was found to be broken. There was a large piece of the glass that was missing. So I just had a thought right here in this moment. Do you think maybe the glass was the murder weapon? That's what he cut him with? But the glass didn't have any notable blood on it. All the blood was located on the bed, the wall, the ceiling. Now, there wasn't blood located because they did find the missing shard of glass. Oh, they did. And I don't know... They did, and the shard of glass was, if you want to think about it like a rocks glass, I don't think it would have been able to puncture the wound. Wouldn't have and been if big the enough. person was stabbing them with the glass, you would have cuts on your hands. 
fair point. It would have had to have been really a really big piece of glass. Absolutely. But I did see a few conversations about just that. So great point. Uh, some of the other things that they found when they did search the room was a hairpin. So like a bobby pin, a safety pin. Someone had dropped an unsmoking cigarette and a full bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. Now, Lindsay, you went down a rabbit hole on this one. Yeah, I did because it really stuck out to me because if everything is going to be missing from a room, why this one thing? We know or we can reasonably assume that Owen didn't bring it in because he didn't have a bag. He just had the few things he did have in his coat pocket. So why this? So I got to digging to see kind of what it is, what it's used for. And MSDS Online says that the major use of sulfuric acid is in fertilizers. And it's also used in synthetic detergents, dyes and pigments, explosives, and drugs. Now, it's also said that it's unique because not only does it cause chemical burns, but also secondary thermal burns as a result of dehydration. So it's saying it can corrode the skin because it's going to basically absorb any moisture that's in there. It can even corrode paper, metals, and even stone. And if it makes contact with your eyes, it can cause permanent blindness. It's commonly found in battery acid, and it's usually prepared with the reaction of water. So you've got, just in layman's terms here, because I am not a scientist, you've got the acid and then you mix it with the water to make it have that reaction. I'm now I'm wondering if the glass that was broken had water in it and they were going to mix it more and use it as a torture device. I can't help but think it was for some sort of torture purpose for disfiguration or something. Now, there were four fingerprints found and they were small enough that the police really just thought they were women's fingerprints. Now, they didn't match Owen, and they did not match against any of the employees because they did look at all the, the maids and the people who were going to be in and out of the room that day. But also note, Owen was in the room when the first maid came. She may have skipped wiping down the tables and the lamps and services because, I mean, to be quite honest, he kind of freaked her out. She was really nervous about it because of his questioning and how the room was set up, and it was dark. So this could be a red herring. And we do know that there was a woman who stayed in that room the night before, so it easily could have been her prints. Obviously, they're not getting a lot of help from the evidence that they found, which was virtually nothing. So police brought in reporters to help spread the news to try to find out what's this guy's story? What happened? Did anyone see anything? It didn't take long before they started to suspect that the name Roland T. Owen was fake because they can't find anything on him anywhere. Nobody seems to know him. So they're trying a new angle. And they contacted the LAPD in hopes of finding the next of kin, because remember, he put an LA address at check-in, but again, no luck. So they call in the FBI, and they're hoping to match the fingerprints against something, anything, to find his ID. Since the police couldn't identify him, 
What they decided to do is put his body on display at a local funeral home. They laid it out so people could come in and out, and he was displayed for 11 weeks. Now, over the course of this time, we did see in a few articles where there were reports of 50 people. Some reports said over 200. So give or take that, it is a discrepancy that we did find. Now, Lane, the taxi driver, the water worker who was presumed to be a taxi driver, had come in and he looked at him and he was like, that is the guy that got into my car. He is the one that I took over to the taxi. Well, the police didn't really believe that because they thought maybe the wounds didn't match up or he had misidentified him, but the police just weren't buying his theory. However, the police did find that Owen had visited a few bars or liquor stores, the terminology that they used in some of these older articles. He was with two women at a couple of different places. Now, what was strange is that not one person in the hotel saw him leave during the night of his first stay. Again, hotel workers, they get busy. They're focused on other things. You take it with a grain of salt. But by now, this story has reached national interest. People are coming from all over to provide tips, to look at him, because it's just such a bizarre case. How does a man just end up dead? You talk to him, but he didn't tell you who tried to hurt him. One wild goose chase sent detectives in the wrong direction. They found a bloody towel at the hotel, and they're like, oh, this has got to be something good. But... Unfortunately, it turned out that it had just been used to try to clean up the room after the police had left. Now, a man matching Roland Owen's description did actually spend some time staying at the Mulebach as well as the St. Regis Hotel, which are two nearby hotels to the president. And the name that was used at the Mulebach was Eugene Scott. So they're asking hotels in the area, have you seen this man? Yes, actually, I have. Oh, was his name Roland T. Owen? No, it was Eugene Scott. So now they know he's using aliases. But the staff at the Regis said, you know what, though? This man came in with another man. And we will actually talk about this later. This is kind of a big point in this story. What's interesting to note, especially at this point in the story, that when they went to talk to the Muhlenbach staff, they recalled that Owen or Eugene Scott at this point had requested a room high up and faced the courtyard. He didn't want to be on the street side. So exactly the same behavior that we saw at the President Hotel. Again, after investigating, the LAPD reported that there was no one in by Eugene Scott's name in their city. Now, one man seemed to have the answer of who Owen was. He identified him as his cousin, and he said his cousin's sister so also his cousin, was called in to confirm. But you know what? She walks in and goes, no, 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 no. My brother, his cousin, died five years ago. That's not Owen. What a crappy cousin. You didn't even know he died. But I get it. It's the time, the space, the communication. Lead after lead is going cold. But another one comes forward. And this is Tony Bernardi. He was a wrestling promoter from Little Rock, Arkansas, and he came to view the body and said, I know that guy. 
He told me his name was Cecil Werner, and he came to me around the beginning of December 1934 trying to see if he could wrestle in some matches. Now, this is interesting because we do know that Roland Owen was either a boxer or a wrestler because of the cauliflower ear. Now, Bernardi had referred him to another wrestling promoter in Omaha, Nebraska, but we don't know if he never made it there or if it just wasn't a memorable interaction because this promoter did not recognize the man from room 1046. And this is where the story gets even stranger. So right now, they're trying to investigate who killed this man calling himself Owen. But crime hasn't stopped in the city. There are two more murders that happened, which took time and resources away from this case that honestly, is just going cold. They did their best with the leads they had, but honestly, they were running out. The funeral announced that it was going to have a burial in a pauper's grave on March 4th if nobody came to claim the body. Newspapers ran a real small story on it, but this would lead to a very interesting call. So a man called and asked the funeral home to hold off on the services because he wanted to send money to pay for an actual graveside funeral and service. He said that he wanted this man to be buried near his sister in a very specific cemetery. He gave the name of the cemetery. And the funeral director is like, man, I'll do it, but I'm going to have to tell the police about this call because, you know, they've been looking for who this guy is. So can you tell me your name? Now, the guy wouldn't tell him his name, but he said, do what you have to do. I know you have to call the police. Well, the funeral director gets curious and says, well, how do you know this guy? If you can't tell me your name, how do you know him? What do you you know about his death? And he actually was surprised by what the caller said. The caller tells this story about the deceased man, which is Owen, being engaged to a woman, but having an affair with another And the plan was that the caller and these two women had gotten together and sought revenge. He is quoted to say on this phone call, cheaters usually get what's coming to them and then he hangs up. Now, the caller actually did mention within the phone call that the police were on the wrong track, essentially. The funeral director did what the caller had asked and they delayed the funeral until around March 23rd. They received a very special delivery, which was very carefully addressed. We're talking somebody put the envelope on a table, got a ruler, and wrote it so it would be very distinct. Inside the letter was $25. Now, that roughly equals about $500 today, and it was wrapped in a newspaper. The person who had sent the letter did not put their name on it. They didn't have any type of identification whatsoever that could lead to who it came from. Two more letters were delivered containing $5 each for flowers. Phone calls were made to the florist, and the caller was very adamant. They wanted two sets of American Beauty roses, and they wanted it specifically for Owen's funeral. Now, the caller... And this is a quote that we were able to pull saying, I'm doing this for my sister. I will send you a $5 bill, special delivery. So the police try to trace down and track who made this call because it could lead to maybe the killer themselves or maybe a family member who could identify Owen's true identity. 
But unfortunately, the caller had used a payphone and they were again at a dead end. Now, the letter for the flowers did include a handwritten note that said, Love Forever Louise. And this is where this story earns the nickname, The Love Forever Slaying. So they did have the funeral service, but the only people who were there were the minister who led the service and the detectives. And some of the detectives served as the pallbearer, which is the people who carry the casket out of the service to the graveside. Other detectives posed as grave diggers and staked out the grave for the next several days, trying to see if anyone came to visit, pay their final respects, just anything they could to try to get a clue. Now, several days after the funeral, another interesting phone call comes in, and a woman called the Kansas City Journal-Post and said, hey, your earlier story said that the dead man from 1046 would be buried in a pauper's grave. That's incorrect. He was actually given a formal funeral. So this was interesting because someone is taking the time to correct the facts in these cases, in this in this case, they're keeping up with it, they're following it, and they're saying, hey, this information is wrong. Now, that could come back into play later, which we'll talk about. And it's interesting to the point that if they were involved in the murder, why would they care? Right. They had to have known him. There's no reason to go to that length when it's a minor detail. And then to pay for the funeral and send flowers It's just weird. It's a very weird scenario. Now, remember, somebody did call and say that he wanted them buried near their sister. But if you cheat on someone, you hurt them. Why would you care? Why would you have this feeling of love towards them? Because that's what you usually do for loved ones. And remember, he's not married at this point. He's still a free, fun-loving bachelor. He's 18 maybe at this time. You know, maybe it was during that time and culture to get married young, but he definitely was not married. Well, and you could see maybe if an if a couple is married, one of them cheats on one and turns up dead, they would still want to be buried next to them because they were married. But in this case, they weren't. So it's just very interesting that someone is taking all of this care for someone that could have hurt them. And I think it's interesting, too, because Roland Owen wouldn't tell the police who did this. He said, I fell and hit my head. Okay, you've got stab wounds and you're bound by your neck and your hands. So it's almost as if he was trying to protect or cover for someone that he also loved. So as time goes on, the picture of the man, it's still going around in newspapers. It's still a national interest story. And someone actually finally did recognize him. Now, this is a huge shocker. Let's go to November 1936. A lady reads a newspaper and she almost hits the floor. She recognizes this person, but she recognizes it as her friend's son. So she runs over to her friend whose name is Ruby Ogletree. The picture looked so eerily like Artemis that she had to show him. Turns out it was Ruby's son. Now, Artemis was born in Florida of 1915, and he was one of three kiddos by Ruby. Now, sometime between 1915 and 1930, they had moved to Birmingham, Alabama. 
Yay, home state shout out. Artemis had left Birmingham for whatever reason in 1934, and he hitchhiked, or he said he was going to hitchhike all the way to California. Now, he's just 17 years old at this point. He had been a wrestler, so that profile actually fits. So they're guessing he's a boxer or a wrestler is true to form. Now, they wanted to be able to confirm all these other aliases that he could have used really was Artemis. And so when they were talking on the phone with uh, Ruby, the detectives back in Kansas City, Ruby tells them a story about how he got his scar or his burn marks. So when he was a little kid, hot grease actually hit him and it did scar him. And it was right there above the ear. And at this point, they're like, yep, we've got the exact same man. Now, here's the strange part. She has just learned that her son is dead. He's 18 at this point. He left home when he was 17. But then it occurs to her, you know, Artemis sent me some letters here recently. But now, recently, would be after his death. She actually received letters from him after she now knows he's dead. These letters were interesting, and she thought that they were a little fishy at first, because Artemis did not know how to type, and these letters were typed. And at first, the letters were postmarked from Chicago. And these letters also had slang and verbiage that Artemis wouldn't normally use. It just did not sound like him. That May, Ruby received a letter, and it said that he, which we now know was not in fact him, it had to be someone pretending to be him, was about to set sail for Europe, And the postmark was from New York City. So we've got one from New York City. We've got one from Chicago. And then to add more insult to injury, she receives a phone call that August from Memphis, Tennessee. Now, the caller who had called her from Memphis, Tennessee, explained that Artemis had been in a horrific fight to which he actually saved the caller's life. Now, he did explain that Artemis was now living in Cairo, Egypt. And, you know, this is a love story. He met a gorgeous, wealthy woman and that he's living happily ever after. But the issue is that Artemis couldn't write her because he was missing his thumbs. Now, let's jump back for a second in the autopsy. They were very adamant about the blunt force trauma to his head, the stabs on his chest, and the cords around his neck and his wrists. They didn't say anything about his thumbs. So we have to presume that his thumbs were still intact. Now, Artemis must have known this person because they were able to converse for 30 minutes and he was bringing up things that only somebody who was close to him or had spent time with him would have known. Now, we will say this. The caller did tell Ruby his name, but she gave that name to police, which has never been released until that name for a long time was not revealed. But through Lindsay's little investigation, we were able to locate the caller's name. It could be an alias, but the name that we we found was Jordan. It was not an easily identifiable name. It was not in every article, but we were able to find to find it. But of course, this is many, many years later. For a long time, it was not there. So the police searched passenger records for boats that sailed to Europe from the time he left Birmingham to the time that the caller 
called because he said he was in Cairo. And then also that letter said he was sailing to Europe. But no luck on all of the ship's lists. There was never a name. But what we do know is if he did do this, which we know he didn't because he was dead at this time, he used aliases. So even if it was true, you can't be sure. But the embassy in Cairo also did not have any record or evidence that he had ever traveled there. So again, we're back to dry lead after dry lead. They keep getting all this good information, but who killed this man? We've figured out who he is, but we've got nothing on who would have done it. But somebody, somebody did do it. In 1937, the New York City police, they came across a man, arrested him by the name of Joseph Auden, which was an alias, was also known as Joseph Martin, on a murder charge. After he killed a man he roomed with, so it's like his roommate, he put the body in a trunk, naked, and sent it to Memphis, Tennessee. Now, Memphis, Tennessee is, you know, flashback over to the phone call Ruby Ogletree gotten. So there's a connection there. Also, New York is one of the postmarks that Ruby received. And Ogden was 39, which we'll talk about later, possibly 36, can't really be sure. And he was sentenced to 20 years. So another interesting fact comes up because at this point he's just charged with murder he's sentenced but in their investigation they found out his name is joseph martin he was going by joseph ogden so they're looking into aliases for this guy well they come across one that really struck them as odd because he used the alias donald kelso well as we know donald the nickname is often don so they're like wait a minute Maybe we've got something here. Let's at least check it out. They go back looking for any indication that he would be tied to Artemis Ogletree, and they got a surprise. As it turns out, in October of 1934, which this is only two-ish months before the murder, a man named Donald Kelso had registered at the St. Regis Hotel with someone named Duncan Ogletree. Coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. We do know that Artemis Ogletree, who was using all those other aliases, had stayed at the Regis Hotel. And if you recall, a few minutes ago, we said that when he stayed at the Regis Hotel, he was with another man. So this is looking pretty promising. Now, it's also really intriguing because the handwriting samples match the letters written to Ruby. Now, this was found out. We did find out that this was by an article the New Yorker wrote in which the Kansas City Police did the analysis. It's also intriguing because he had killed his roommate. Huh. That sounds kind of coinciding, too. And they were initially looking for whoever roomed with Ogletree. So that's another connection that they made. So Lindsay decides to research more about this and goes down a deeper rabbit hole. The railway worker noticed something dripping from the trunk. Now this is going back to his murder charge of him putting somebody in the trunk. And they did find, or it was presumed that it was blood. So he opened it up and they found a man soon to be identified as Oliver Cynical. He was a racketeer a dope peddler, and he had been shot. Now, 
shooting is different from what we saw from Ogletree. But again, he is naked just like Ogletree was. But technically speaking, that could happen to anyone. Just because they were both found naked doesn't mean anything. And one was shot, one was stabbed and beaten. So they're like, uh, okay, it could be related, could not. Let's keep digging. But then (laughs) there is an article, again, in The New Yorker that details how they actually caught Oliver Sinekow's killer, which was Joseph Martin slash Joseph Ogden slash Donald Gelso. And in it, Oliver and Joseph, because we know they were roommates, their landlord said that Joseph came to her one day. Now, they called her mama. And he said, Mama, Red promised to be back at 10 o'clock. Red was Oliver's nickname because he had red hair. And here it is close to midnight. I just know he's running around with someone else and is getting ready to leave me. And if he is, Mama, I'm going to kill him. Now, this is somewhat familiar to this jaded lover theory that was thrown around with Artemis Ogletree, which the caller who called the funeral home said, oh, he was engaged to be married to someone, ran off with someone else. Now, the landlord said, this is actually the same day I saw Joseph carry a big old trunk out of his apartment. Well, that's that's pretty damning. She also said that they were, this is her quote, not ours, feminine men, which is her way of saying she thought that they were in a relationship. Also interesting because could that mirror Artemis's situation? Were they living in and out of hotels together? It's possible. Here's where it gets really crazy to me because, again, I started looking at this other killing just to see is anything the same to find out if he could actually be that Dawn. Well, after he's caught... After police catch him, he's in questioning, and he tells them what happened. There's a couple key words here. He says that the two were smoking marijuana cigarettes and arguing over a debt. Then they went to bed, but it was very hot, so they slept nude. In the early hours of the morning when they woke up, Oliver and Joseph began to argue. Oliver became abusive, grabbed the gun, and Joseph tried to take it away. They struggled, and it misfired. He wasn't sure what to do, and he was also under the influence of marijuana, so he left, and he took a long walk for an hour or so. When he came back, trying to figure out what to do with the body, he got acid and used the acid and a knife to remove a tattoo from Oliver's arm so he couldn't be identified. At this point, my mouth is hanging open and I texted Jen and I was like, Jen, this has to be the same guy because you've got cigarettes. There was a cigarette in the room. Now, the cigarette in the hotel room did not specify whether it was a marijuana cigarette or not. But for me, it was just a buzzword. They were sleeping nude when the attack happened in both cases. In, uh, in the case of Oliver... Joseph got up and took a walk after. Now here, this could parallel Artemis's story in the theory that the man who was with the sex worker who left the hotel at four in the morning was actually the killer. And then the acid. The acid to me was like getting hit in the face with a ton of bricks. Like, hello, this is the same thing. What else would that acid have been in that room for? Now, at the end of the day, they did not charge him for the Ogletree case, and they left that case open. And it's really interesting that he swore up and down 
he was an uncle of a prominent movie actress. So maybe he thought he was going to get some leniency there, but I don't see it with the 20-year sentence. And I'll tell you what I did. This is sort of extra, but I went on Ancestry.com and I was looking for prominent movie actresses named Louise to see if they were related to, to anyone named Joseph Martin. I couldn't come up with anything, but I searched actresses named Louise in the, in the 1935 time just to see. The case gets colder and colder. That is until... The files show that different detectives reviewed the case every couple years, and I think that's still pretty much common today. Like, every now and then they'll pull a cold case and see if there's any new evidence there. And this happened every few years, and it went through the 1950s. Every time, they noted they they would still keep it open. There's no new evidence. There's nothing they could uncover. But in 2003 or 2004... John Horner. Now, he is a local historian for the Public Library of Kansas City. He got a call from somebody who was out of state that said something really interesting. So the caller had been helping out inventorying items that had belonged to an elderly person who had recently passed. The caller had mentioned that there was a shoebox, which turned out to be filled of newspaper clippings and everything related to this case. Now, according to them, there was one item that was mentioned in the newspaper stories that could be linked back to that box. Now, this is 69 years later, and let's say the person died when they were a hundred and that's kind of being generous there with the math but they would have been 31 when they when the murders had happened maybe younger now remember so remember this would be about the time when joseph aka martin aka don would have been about 39 or 36 depending on because we had two different sources one said 39 and 36 So to me, that puts him a little bit too old to be the suspect, but it could have been someone related to him, a.k.a. that box could have been Louise's, not the actual killer's, but someone related to the killer. And maybe it wasn't right after the death. Maybe it had been a few years and they're just not going back and inventorying it. You know, there there are a few years that we can play around with there. Now, the person reported that, again, something was in the box that matched the newspapers that tied the late owner to the actual murder. They're not going to say what it is. They, they left the suspense. But one, this is a random phone call that we saw back at the time of the murders. You know, phone call to the funeral home, phone call to the florist. And now we're getting a phone call to a library. What I'm thinking, my personal opinion, I think it's the room key. There is a big theory that it was the room key because it was missing. And here's where I fell in another rabbit hole. I went looking because this caller specifically stated something in the articles. So we went into our subscription for old archive newspapers. I pulled up the newspapers from 1935 when all this happened to see what items were listed. The key was listed. And there was one other thing that was listed and this is dark and I don't think this is actually what it is but the only other thing that was mentioned in the calls were the letters that Artemis's mom got from this person saying that his thumbs were missing 
And I just had this panic moment of, oh, my God, there's thumbs in the box. And I don't think it is because Jen brought up a good point about the autopsy. And they would have said if someone was missing their thumbs. And also, he wasn't that didn't happen. That was a fake letter. But I just had this God awful picture in my mind of some poor guy going to help clean out some house and finding thumbs in a box. I just want to know what's in the box. What's in the box? (laughs) Unfortunately, the caller did not identify themselves nor the item. Again, going back to the calls made to the funeral home. Again, going back to the calls to the florist. No identification. Why make these calls? There are no, there's not a need for this because it just produces more questions, speculation, and conspiracies. I'm I'm wondering why they continue this trend. The librarian or the person who worked for the library did not make this public until years and years after because he got the call around 2002, 2003. He did not make this public until 2012 because he became a blogger for Kansas City Library. And this was one of the final posts that he put on his blog. And uh, I have not personally read his blog, just little snippets here and there. But it, it's a pretty good article. There's some things that I, I read that I was like, uh, I don't know if it really goes with the the facts of the case. But I think he had a pretty good grasp on it. Yeah, so here's what we're going to do now. We are going to reiterate the timeline of this story for you guys because it's very muddled, lots of players, lots of possibilities. Then we're going to go through what little evidence we do have. And then we're just going to bring up some of our questions, which we probably won't have answers to, but we at least want to get them out there. So let's go to the timeline of events. We start out January 2nd, 1935. It's around 1.20 in the afternoon. Ogletree checks into the hotel. The bellhop sees them unpack the brush, the comb, and the toothpaste. They both leave the room. Ogletree leaves the hotel. At an unknown time, the maid comes in the room. During this time, Ogletree leaves the room asking the maid not to lock the door because a friend is coming in 15 minutes. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the maid comes in, returns the towels. Now she sees the note that reads, I will be back in 15 minutes. And what's weird is he's laying on the bed fully dressed. So now we are at January 3rd, 1935. The next morning, the maid comes in the room. Ogletree receives a call and he says, no, Don, I am not hungry. I just had breakfast. Four o'clock that same day in the afternoon, the maid knocks on the door. A loud voice responds that they didn't need any towels. Now, at 6 o'clock p.m., Jean Owen checks into the room next door. At 6.50 p.m., she calls her boyfriend who works at a local flower shop. 9.30 p.m., that boyfriend arrives at the hotel to visit Jean Owen. At 11, Robert Lane, the water worker guy, picks up an unnamed man looking for a taxi. 11.30 p.m., Jean Owen's boyfriend leaves the hotel. We don't know the time on this one. So between 11.30 and midnight, she hears loud voices and cursing in the hallway. Interesting note here. We know that this is also around the time where she heard that gasping and the struggle in Artemis's room. But we know he didn't die until later. He didn't die until 
four-ish in the morning. So just interesting note there. Well, he didn't die. They just... Or when he was He didn't die at four. He was attacked then. He didn't die until they came and got him. But yes. So let's cut to midnight, which is January the 4th. This is when the elevator operator's shift starts. The next series of events happened somewhere between midnight and maybe two, three o'clock. And at an unknown time between midnight and two, a sex worker comes in. The elevator operator takes her to the 10th floor. Five minutes later, she asks about the room number. This is where she says, I'm looking for 1026. They thought maybe she meant 1046 and all that. 30 to 40 minutes later, the elevator operator goes back to the 10th floor and she leaves the hotel. One hour later, she comes back in with an unknown man. At 4.15 a.m., this was about the time that they think he was fatally attacked, she leaves. At 4.30 a.m., the unknown man that she was with leaves for a walk. Now, my question here is, is is he relevant? Because he was staying on the ninth floor. The elevator person escorted her up to the ninth floor where he was staying but some theories say that this was Don and he was staying in the hotel because these two men had stayed in hotels a lot and kind of bounced around and that's just where his room was at 7:10, the first wake-up call tries to happen but with the phone being off the hook the bellboy goes to the room ogletree yells to turn on the light But the bellboy does not answer. He just says, hang up the phone, and walks away. At 8.30 a.m., the bellboy, Pike, goes to the room and enters with his key. This is when he notices Ogletree on the bed without clothes and sees those shadows on the bed. What he thinks are shadows. At 11 o'clock, the bellboy goes into the room, notices him naked and hurt. Runs out, gets the assistant manager and the police. So that is the timeline. So now let's go through the evidence just so that we have a good high level overview before we ask our questions. So we know there's not a lot of evidence, but here's what we do have. We've got fingerprints, but we can't be sure they're even related because it could have been the person who stayed there the night before. We've got a hairpin, which would imply that a woman was there. However... We know that the maid did not clean until Ogletree was actually in the room. So could that have been from either the maid or the woman who stayed there the night before? We have a label from a tie, presumably the one that he was choked with or strangled with, and him grasping at it would have ripped off the label. An unlit cigarette. And here are the items that were missing. His clothes, the toiletries. He was naked and bound around the neck and hands. You know... We know that they had to take his clothes, but would there have been evidence on the clothes of who they could, who the murderers were, so they had to take them with them? But why the shampoo and the and all of the toiletries? I, I've got nothing on that. The only re- possible remote theory that I can think of is going under the assumption that. Don and Artemis or Joseph, whatever his name is, were bouncing from hotel to hotel because they like he was taking their lifestyle. He was taking it with him so that he would have more like they didn't have an official home. 
they were just kind of that's my theory bouncing around and so he took they were it transient just so that he would have supplies on hand because we know that Artemis had bounced around from city to city and state to state so if this was a new friend of his he would have been in the same boat possibly now we know there was a bottle of sulfuric acid which we talked about the theory behind that there were phone calls and money from anonymous people for the funeral and the flowers. And then there were letters from the quote-unquote deceased after his death, as well as one phone call. Now, this is interesting because somebody's trying very, very hard to cover it up. Someone is writing letters after you're dead. They're talking about thumbs and rich women in Cairo and making phone calls. That's a lot to go through to try to cover for this. So it makes me wonder if it definitely was someone he knew because generally as we hear a lot in true crime if you don't know the person a lot of times people will just kind of dispose of them wherever because the chances of them being linked to that person are very slim let's get into this a little bit more Lindsay. so artemis was using several aliases why was he hiding he's a young fighter he's got to be afraid of something because there are several reports that he the presumption is that he was being held there outside of his will. Whether that's true or not, we're not quite sure. But why was he tied up? So I'm wondering now about this relationship that he and Don may have had. You know, maybe it was a Don was seeing a woman, Louise, and Don were, was trying to make advances. And maybe Artemis didn't feel that way. And that's probably why he killed him. I wonder if he was tied up because he was a fighter. So the person who killed him knew that they would have to assert control over him or else they were going to get taken down themselves. So maybe they themselves or a woman kind of almost seduced him into kind of like letting them tie him up maybe. But And that's why I'm wondering now, was the sex worker even involved in this or did she just get wrapped up in something that she really had no connection to right i'm wondering if this was don uh reaching out telling his true feelings maybe he did like ogletree in a way that ogletree wasn't ready to reciprocate and that's what caused him to kill his love interest could be so let's talk about let's assume for a second that it has nothing to do with a jaded lover. We've we've talked about that theory. We know what it is. But let's say that it's not. What would it be if not? Could it be a professional hit? A love triangle go, gone wrong? A drug thing? Maybe the acid was related to drugs. The mob was super active during that time. If it's not somehow a love triangle of some sort, what would it be? Okay, so we know Don Kelso or Joseph Martin, Joseph Aldean, whatever name he's going by these days or during that time, we knew that he peddled drugs. He was a small-time peddler. So could it be that Ogletree owed him money because I, of a drug addiction? I wondered that as well because Oliver Cynical, who Joseph Martin, Martin ended up killing, was also a drug peddler. They both were. So... And he mentioned that that argument they had that allegedly led to the murder was over a debt owed. So that makes me wonder there if that was a drug debt. So could this have been as well? 
I mean, it's a sound theory because if Ogletree owed him money, then he would probably, one, be tortured until he was able to produce the money. If he was peddling with Joseph or a.k.a. Don, that would have put him in a very tight situation. And we know from Don, a.k.a. Joseph's history, that he deals with this in a certain way because he's going to kill people who owe him money or they owe together on a debt so he can go to his boss and say, you know, it was really this guy who owed it to you, so I just went ahead and took care of it for you. Right. Another thing that really bothers me is the phone being off the hook because I wonder if Owen was trying to call for help and that's why it came off the hook or if the killer or killers kept coming back in the room and taking it off the hook so no one could call him because the dried blood showed that he was attacked about six to seven hours before the bellhop Probst came by to tell him the first time to put the phone back on the hook. Now, if you remember at this time, Ogletree yelled at him, turn on the light and Probst said, no, man, I can't. Your door's locked. Put your phone back on the hook. So if he was injured at that point, which the timing seems to show, why didn't he yell for help? He, Why didn't he say, I'm hurt, call 911 or anything like that? Now, remember, he also had blunt force trauma to his head. So he may have been disoriented. He may be in a semi-conscious state. So he may not have been in his right mind to yell for help. He may not have realized at that point where he was or what he was saying. I agree if he felt okay enough to, if he was in his right mind, hey, turn on the lights. Yeah. And thinking the door was unlocked, probably because he couldn't stand up and he wanted them to come in. But think about it like this. He was a fighter. He was a wrestler. He was used to getting hurt in the ring and in training. Maybe he thought his injuries were so superficial that all he needed to do was rest, sleep it off, and he would make it through like he did all of his other previous injuries or knocks to the head or boxing. He could have thought that he was okay. My other thought is if the bellhop went in they could have saved his life. We don't know that for a fact. Those injuries that he sustained could have been life-threatening from the get-go, and he may have never recovered from it. But I'm wondering if the bellhop had actually went in at that 7:10 wake-up call, could he have survived this? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a valid question because it went on for at least a few hours later. And another thing that sticks out to me is Comparing the two murders here of Oliver Sinecal and Artemis Ogletree, why did they leave Ogletree alive? Now, my first instinct says maybe he was unconscious and they thought he was dead. I think that's probably what happened. Or that they, the killer intended to beat him up real well. And then once he kept hearing in the news that no one ever figured out who did it, The next time he ran into someone, he made it a little more final, thinking he wasn't going to get caught. I wonder if Louise was a fake name as well, and that was what they called her, because we know they used fake names, so maybe her name is Susan, you know, but they just call her Louise because that's what they're going by, kind of out on the streets, and so she carried that into the letter as well. 
I don't know. This whole thing, I don't know. In the last case with Sherlock, I had more of a stance, but this one, I'm just kind of stumped on. I, I just don't know. I think it's safe to say that we can 80% be assured that Joseph Martin, Joseph, a.k.a. Don Kelso, knew Ogletree. They traveled together. They stayed together. They had a lot of connections. And for Ogletree to end up very similar to Oliver really highly suggests in high probability that he was the one that committed the murder. My only hesitation in this I, I, I do, I, like, I really want to say, yes, Joseph did this. But if Joseph did, why continue the letters? Right. Because if he wanted to make sure, okay, I made a mistake on this one, I, I'm going to correct it by saying, no, it don't bury him in a pauper's funeral. I think he, if it's true that Joseph, a.k.a. Don, a.k.a. another Joseph, I think if it's true that he was, quote unquote, a feminine man, that he really probably had a lot of strong feelings for Ogletree, which would account for him paying for the funeral, the guilt that he felt, the, you know, probably, you know, the love or attraction that he still felt for this man. And that's why he paid for everything. Now, Louise still throws me off, though, because I was so certain that he was engaged to a Louise or whoever her name, whatever her name was. And she had gotten pregnant maybe, or he wouldn't marry her or he cheated on her. And Don really kind of seemed like that big brother protection type because cheaters are going right. to get what they deserve. So it all, it almost makes me wonder was, was Ogletree interested in women? And when he passed on Don, he thought Don thinks Joseph thinks that Ogletree's cheating on him with that woman. And that's where that cheaters are going to cheat. Interesting. Could be. I think there's any un, any number of ways this could be spun. I do feel pretty strongly, like you said, that Joseph is in some way related. What I don't have a feeling on is why or how. I just, I can't figure out what I think happened in my mind. So many loose ends, so many red herrings that are a part of this. But we definitely do want to hear what you guys think about this. So let us know. All right, everyone. That was such a crazy story. But right now, let's go ahead and hop over to our Facebook group. We did something a little differently today. We asked the question, what do you think about Richard Lansom Green, murder or suicide and why? And we got some really good responses. Yeah. So... The first response we got was from Ashton, and she said, a huge part of me wants to say suicide, and he was just delusional, but there are too many cases out there where people didn't believe someone due to their delusions, mental health history, and they were right all along. The scene wasn't treated as a murder scene. Who's to say he wasn't being influenced in some way, like chemically, etc., that would give him paranoia? I don't remember hearing about a toxicology report. Then she went on to say underneath that, Making someone sound delusional so people want so people won't believe them is a good way to go about a crime. If the papers became public, they were no longer super secretive, and that's where a lot of their value lies. So that's interesting. Well, like I said, it's only paranoia if it's not true. Yeah. So I think 
I, I still think it's murder, though. I don't think it's suicide. Um, Colin and I completely disagree. He wrote, I think suicide. It sounds like he was losing it mentally and came up with an elaborate death of a mystery for Sherlock Holmes group. I, and I, I can see that point. I can really understand where the suicide was so imperative because the American voice was on the answer machine. It was the default. And, you know, he was obsessed, lack of sleep. But I just don't think someone could garrot themselves to death. I think it's very, very rare. And for you to do that, you'd usually pass out first. You know, I I just think that's a horrible way to go about it. Yeah, it would definitely be difficult. But I think this next comment is from Brisky. And I think this was an interesting point, too. And I don't know that you and I really considered this. She said, I'm kind of leaning towards assisted suicide. Maybe he planned it, but had help carrying it out. If he was losing his mind, the plan being executed well might be because he wasn't doing it alone. He could have planned it years prior if that's the case. So that's that's interesting. And of course, guys, we also did our traditional, hey, we're recording, drop us a line. And some of the first ones that came up was Jay. He said, you two are awesome. The Corpus Delicti podcast is a highlight of my week. Keep up the great work. Adam says, I bought a house. It's huge, too. Lots of places to bury uh, plant seeds. Good save there, my guy. <laughs> Joel from the Florida Men podcast, one of my favorite of all times, by the way, said, y'all got me hooked on Best Fiends. The wife and kids say I'm obsessed. Yeah. Me Love too. some Best Fiends. I love Like, it. legit, we really do play it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, about to hit, like, 800 or so. I... I oh just, my I gosh, that's insane. Wendy posted a gif. Wendy. <laughs> it's a gif, not a gif, of one of the Beatles in a trunk of a car. I don't know why he's in the trunk of a car, but when it opens, he says, hello. And I don't know which Beatle it is either. I have no idea. And I don't, I, I, I'm concerned for him being in a trunk, but. <laughs> so that wraps this up. One quick update. Hopefully you guys cannot tell, but I guess we can go ahead and tell you that um, this episode is actually what we're doing right now is the third recording. This episode, we've for some reason had some issues with. And when we came back from the promo break, that was actually several nights later for us. And then now this ending wrap up is several nights later from that because the Sherlock curse has hit Corpus Delicti and we've had nothing but issues since. But... As of today, today is Tuesday, my granny passed away today, so we will not have an episode next week. I'm about to leave town, so we will not have time to go through the recording and editing and all that, so please just bear with us for the week since I'll be gone, but we'll be back next week ready to go, or the next week ready to go. And she's not kidding about this curse. We had to record (laughs) this episode three times. Lindsay, oh my God, you poor family. Because one, your son was attacked. My, and your dog was attacked. By my dog same. and my son were attacked dog. by the same dog at the same time. But regardless, they were attacked by a dog. And then I get a call Sunday night saying, uh, Lin- Kinsey's, I keep calling her Lindsay. God bless my little girl. They were like, Kinsey's school is closed because the toilet pipes that run throughout the building that connect all the little bitty potties in the classrooms had burst and backed up and f- overflowed all of the rooms so they got drywall damage they've got you know carpet they have to rip up all the floors they have to replace so she is out of school for this entire week maybe next oh week we have yet to see so i am working from home 
with her. Then you got attacked by a coffee pot. Okay, this I didn't put on the Facebook group, but that next day after, it was Monday, I went to work. They have this little espresso machine, not the cool one that Lindsay has. (laughs) Love my machine. Office, my same company, but different offices. And I had this like light pastel pink shirt. I did have an undershirt on, so it wasn't like all hoochie fight or anything. And dark vanilla coffee spread all over my shirt. <laughs> well, then we found out that there is another Corpus Delicti podcast. Now, granted, it's all in Polish. They probably just didn't check. We don't think anybody like stole our name or anything. They probably just didn't check. It's all in Polish. Probably don't even know we exist, but that was a whole ordeal. So truly, y'all, since we did that Sherlock episode, I don't believe in curses, but I'm kind of starting to. (laughs) Me too. It was like, I need to go get some witch hazel and a shrunken head and start shaking (laughs) around our house. So if anyone is or knows how to lift the curse, <laughs> let us know. Hit your girls up. Or say a prayer for us. But I think this episode has gone on super long. Yeah. I don't know how long officially until Lindsay releases it, but I know our second half was a good hour within of it. Yeah, no offense, y'all. We're done with this. After doing it three times, we done. <laughs> Room 1046 is at closing the door and locking it. (laughs) Yeah. Felicia. Goodbye.